You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you there, sir, amongst the beautiful autumn leaves? I am doing all right. Not a whole lot of autumn leaves on the pine trees, but uh, I am... Uh, I am going nuts, uh, you know, trying to get my ducks in a row here in Georgia before we take off for St. Paul on the way to Iowa. Yes, uh, this this will this will be uh, coming out as a recording soon. But right now, in our future, um, dear listeners, our first recorded live episode, which by the time you hear this episode, it will it will be in the past. And I don't know when we'll post that. Sometime when our recording technology breaks down and we won't have another episode ready. <laughs> it'll it'll fill in a gap somewhere. Right. That's a good, sensible way to think about it. Well, the person who doesn't know when that will post is Michael Farmer. Uh, assistant? Yeah, I'm or assistant. Assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I had this, this, this brief moment of... of of question um one of my colleagues is actually going up for promotion this week um i'm super excited uh i'm actually supposed to go up this year i I, like this is my seventh year but Mm -hmm. i waited too long to fill out the application so now i have to wait another year Mm. so it goes the paperwork I want to say at the outset that I will not be present for the end of this episode, so uh, when you hear me disappear, that's why I have a meeting to go to before we're generally done recording. So, sorry folks, or congratulations, or I don't know, depends on what you feel about me. <laughs> I guess Three I get... will be recording a podcast, two will remain, but one will be taken away. <laughs> yes, in, in the, or... or three men enter two men leave i you know we could do it that way too two men walking up a hill one disappears and one's left standing still yeah (laughs) well dear listeners uh before that that uh i don't know apocalyptic revelation or whatever it is that happens at the end of the episode we actually have to have our episode uh our topic today is the 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 much delayed uh conversation about First uh, Clement, uh, a, a text, uh, a text from the early church that has uh, come down to us with the with the title of First Clement. So I want to pitch this at you, Nathan. What what kind of text are we reading here, and what sort of traditional sources? Um, what did the traditional sources say about who and what this text is? This is one of those fun early Christian texts where we have a lot of references to it before we actually have an extant full text of it. So Hmm. the text of 1 Clement we really didn't have until about 200 years ago, but we have uh, people pointing to it before then. Clement traditionally was the second episkopos or overseer of Rome. Uh, Episkopos, the Greek word, becomes bishop in English because the the sk becomes sh for reasons that, you know, linguistically I have no idea why that happened. Mm-hmm. But and the P point becomes is B. That, say that again? And the P becomes B. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, and so uh, what we've got is a, a letter from Peter's successor uh, written to the church in Corinth, where, of course, famously 
St. Paul had written at least three letters, possibly four, because we've got two of them, and he make, makes reference to at least one other one that we don't have. Um, and, you know, from the best scholarship we've got, this looks like it's a late first century, maybe early second century text, so very early, comparable, honestly, with, you know, probably the Gospel of John, maybe the Book of Acts, maybe the Book of Revelation. It's right in there in that canonical range uh, with some of our New Testament books. Uh, as far as the authorship goes, you know, traditionally it gets attributed to, like I said, Clement, the successor of Peter. The text itself doesn't make any authorship claims, uh, so I wouldn't put any real money on, on a wager that Clement was the author. On the other hand, there's no other really strong candidates, so I wouldn't put any real money on, you know, somebody else as author or even as not Clement as author. Uh, authorship, frankly, isn't nearly as interesting as the genre of what we got. And as far as the genre goes, uh, it's fascinating because like the New Testament texts themselves, this is a text that is epistolary. Uh, it goes out from a church leader to the faithful in a different city. Uh, it very heavily quotes the scriptures. And like the New Testament books themselves, it makes uh, passing reference uh, to the existence of other books that we would later call the New Testament. But all of the actual biblical citations uh, are from the scriptures, or as we call it, the Old Testament. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, definitely from the same world as the later epistles of the New Testament. Um, and it is the same kind of document as, you know, many of the documents in the New Testament. So it, it's a very interesting one to set next to them in the same way that, for instance, the Nag Hammadi Library, which is also a recent discovery, really sheds light on, you know, okay, what kinds of other groups were out there making spiritual claims. I mean, now that we have those documents, we actually know what the Gnostics had to say for themselves in addition to what the patristics said against the Gnostics. In a similar way, uh, this one, in a, I would say a more orthodox way, and we'll get into that as we roll along, gives you a sense that, you know, there weren't only uh, a dozen or so letters being sent back and forth between churches for the first 150 years, but this, this was a normal teaching form for that early church. Uh, Michael, is there, is there anything other than that that we want to say about the, the genre of this text? I want to correct myself from an, uh, the episode we recorded when David announced that we were doing First Clement, uh, which I think I called Clement the second pope. He's actually the third. I think there's, I don't know who's between him and Peter, but the introduction to my edition of First Clement points out that he's the third. Bishop oh, and see, I, I, <laughs> I took you at your word, Michael, mm -hmm. and I just called him the successor of Peter. So. Well, he is, he is Peter's successor, but yeah. he's not his immediate successor. Well, there you go. There's another guy. Is it Linus? I don't remember. There's some, there's there's I, I want to say there's another guy in there, but again, he's not named. In fact, uh, I mean, how how does this letter name the ones who are writing it or one who is writing it? Uh, you, I think you you have kind of taken a position there, Grubs, by using the plural. Well, the, it, the plural it, it verb says... because my my addition here. Um, mm -hmm which is Lightfoot, I always want to call him Gordon Lightfoot, J.B. Lightfoot, um, says that this, this may well be a letter from the entire congregation rather than from an individual. But you're right, it says, the church of God which sojourns in Rome to the church of God which sojourns in Corinth to those who are called and sanctified by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I mean, on, on the face at least, this is from Rome, not from an individual. Uh, although it makes sense that, depending on your view of church hierarchy, it makes sense that Clement, Bishop Clement, Pope Clement, <laughs> would uh, would address something from him as from the church in Rome. And I, I think I think one of the issues that's at stake here in this letter is how much you trust church hierarchy. So it's right. it's kind of an important right. question whether whether it's one person writing or whether this is some sort mm -hmm. of group document. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the the whoever is writing this, and and you know, it's 
I, I can't imagine that the entire church sort of got together and dictated it this one for <laughs> one of those one of those uh, <laughs> stories where you go around the circle and everybody adds one word. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think it feels like that kind of text, <laughs> but but nonetheless, someone someone has certainly subsumed um, their individual identity to to the identity of the church of God, which sojourns at Rome. Which, th- there's something to that, right? Because if you think about how church discipline is supposed to work according to the Gospels, and according, I think, to Paul, you're supposed to go one person first, and then you go as a group. So this is, mm-hmm. among other things, a disciplinary document. So it oh, makes it makes sense that, that maybe that it would be um, not an individual writing. Maybe that letter's already happened, and we just don't know about it. Yeah, that's fair enough, because, I mean, Paul's letters to the Corinthians make reference to other documents as well. So, you know, I mean, it, it makes sense that there would be a a series of documents in this case as well as in that one. Corinth was just a problem congregation, apparently. <laughs> Get your act together. You know, it's funny, because Clement, and I'm just going to call him Clement as if one person wrote it, because that's easier. Um, Clement makes reference to how good they used to be, and... Uh, I'm just not sure that's true. I think, I think maybe he was uh, he was trying to butter him up a little mm-hmm. bit there because uh, nothing nothing I read in the two letters to the Corinthians suggests that they were ever all that good of a congregation. Or maybe Clement was just the king yeah. of the backhand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do we know off the top of our head the the proposed dates for First and Second Corinthians? It's like fifty six uh, and fifty seven, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they are generally received as genuine Pauline documents, so they can't mm-hmm. be much later than the 50s A.D. Okay. And and Clement's the 90s? 95 and 96 are the two dates okay. I heard. I mean, that, and, that puts and, it And least... I've seen ranges all the way from 80 A.D. to 120 A.D. Right. It, it, so, hurt, it helps that nobody knows when Clement lived. Right. I mean, it, it, it at least gives us... Um, a range of a generation between Paul's corrective letter and this one. Um, yeah, maybe they got their act together. Yeah, and then and then didn't. <laughs> well, what's interesting, and I know this is this is going to lead us into the next question a little bit. Right. What's interesting is, in some ways, they seem to still be dealing with some of the same problems they were. I mean, you don't get. I mean, Corinth is famous for. It's sexual immorality, right? This is that that's uh, is it First Corinthians where the uh, men are sleeping with their stepmothers. The, the, get, man, yep, the first, man. <laughs> yeah, First Corinthians five. Yep. You, you don't get that problem here, but you do get the problem that that required Paul to write about how we're all members of the same body. So you know, it, it's kind of comforting to know that problems don't go away in a generation. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I also have to note that uh, Plato in Republic, which is, of course, several hundred years before Paul, uh, has Socrates use Corinthian lady friend as slang for a prostitute. Really? <laughs> nice. <laughs> so Corinth. Corinth has a bit of a rep, you're saying. Um, it's it, it says in that first chapter, owing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events that have happened to ourselves, we feel... We have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us. A super long sentence, but do we have Very any kind of sense on. of? Yeah, do we have any sense of what that sudden, what the sudden and successive calamitous events might have been? Is that is that? I, I have heard that it was a persecution. Okay. Yeah, I, I've heard I've heard that that's what this is referring to. I mean, the yeah, the church at Rome is obviously persecuted, but it doesn't seem sudden. Right. Um, that, that that's obviously something that was already happening in the fifties and sixties. Well, but not uh, not I think continuously in an unbroken um, in an unbroken thread throughout. I think there was kind of rashes. <laughs> so right, to speak. right. Nero wasn't known to be systematic about a whole lot of things, uh, but mm-hmm. Domitian's persecution was a lot more, uh, like David said, sustained and targeted. Mm-hmm. So, fair enough. Yeah, it's interesting. We just, 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 just a lot of questions. It's this, this voice coming, coming out of the past, and when would have made a lot of difference to how we read it. We just don't know. I, I just, I, I think about him being the bishop of Rome, 
and how we are we are accustomed to thinking of that as a very elevated position and i suppose it probably was very early rome became the center of christianity but um at this point at least being the bishop of rome really put your head on the chopping block you know rome is where yeah i, I don't know if it's where the persecution was the worst but it was certainly really bad there Mm-hmm. well and even in the relationship to the other churches i mean there's a lot in this in this letter that feels to me like come on you guys <laughs> Less, yeah. <a> little... <laughs> well and, and one of the things you see is that the corinthians material success their affluence is causing their sin in some ways so maybe maybe you yeah. have the spiritual authority as the bishop of rome specifically because you don't have any affluence. Hmm. Well, we need to transition because we've been kind of dancing around the edge of this. Um, First Clement presents itself, you know, as we've said, as a letter to from the Church of Rome to the Church of Corinth addressing a particular ecclesiastical problem. So... What what problem is that, Michael? And and you've already s- suggested that it's got some connections to problems that Paul addressed as well. Yeah, the the problem is insubordination. Um, okay. Which which Clement Clement frames as an issue of envy and of pride, as I suspect insubordination often is. And while it's been three or four weeks now since I've read the letter, so I may be forgetting some stuff. Um, it, it seems to me that there, this is a relatively small number of people being insubordinate, but it, that it's infectious. And so they're, they're stirring mm, up dissension yeah. in the ranks in Corinth. So a good chunk of this letter is all about how to put away your pride, how to become humility, how to become, excuse me, how to become humble. Um, you have to look at Christ's suffering and that'll make you humble. You have to imitate the angels, uh, which will make you humble. And I mean, the angels have this very clear hierarchical system, I believe. Um, so it makes sense that you you would look at the angels and submit yourself to an appropriate hierarchy. Not so much, I believe, that the church in Corinth is going against the church in Rome, but the, the laity in, in Corinth are not obeying their leaders. Yeah. The the continued reference to the, the young throwing off the old. Right. And I wonder, um, I've been reading very slowly this book by Emmanuel Carrere. Um, I'm reading it in French because I'm pretentious, but I think the English translation, (laughs) I think the English translation just came out. It's called The Kingdom. And he he points out something that I'd never thought about before, which is that the, uh, the provincial churches like Corinth don't have a huge background in Judaism. They're, they're, mm, yeah. you, you know, they're, they're largely Gentile churches. And so I wonder if maybe, um, maybe that history is part of what contributes to this. But then again, it's not like, uh, it's not like the ancient Hebrews are notable for their desire to follow authority. So maybe it's just a human problem we're talking about here. I, that sounds pretty plausible to me. <laughs> and also, I mean, it is something that's inherent in some of the very democratic, if you'll allow the word, rhetoric Mm -hmm. of the New Testament, right? Uh, If we are all heirs to Christ, then it becomes more difficult to say that I should listen to you since I am, after all, just as much an heir as you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the early, the apostles don't seem to bother to set up much of a church hierarchy, probably in part because they don't think the world is going to be around for the turn of the first century. Yeah, that's fair enough. So what you get with a lot of these mm-hmm. early letters, they're they're fascinating, because what you get is the birth of the hierarchy. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember, I should look at my edition here. You get it a little bit here. I think it's mostly by implication here. But it's in Ignatius, where you really see Ignatius constantly yeah. telling the people he's writing to, obey yeah. your bishops, obey your bishops, obey your bishops. Mm-hmm. And what David alluded to earlier, the young overthrowing the old, uh, is certainly an echo of, you know, the pastoral epistles where the authority figures are simply referred to as the old men and the old women, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, there's some dispute in, I think, First Timothy, although I didn't prep that, I should have, 
uh, over which old women are genuinely old women and which ones are simply, you know, young enough that they should marry again because they're not really old women yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 get, that gets brought up. Um, we are in the 500th anniversary of Protestantism this year, or at least of one particular moment in the history of the Protestant Reformation. Um, are we are we downrange from Clement at this point? I mean, do we need to be dodging these bullets, or is there stuff here that we can we can take in and process as Protestants without necessarily swimming back across the Tiber? <laughs> I, this is a hard question for me, David. I, I yeah. have, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm teaching Catholic fiction, and the more Catholic fiction, the more Catholic philosophy I read, the less comfortable I am with Protestantism. So understand, I'm not a convert. I'm not Catholic. <laughs> But I, I, kind of, I kind of disgusted with Protestantism right now. I will That's say, all right, Michael. I, I just walked to my office after teaching Dante, so I'm, I'm, I'm swimming the Tiber with you. <laughs> Thank you. You <laughs> just have to just make sure you believe in the real presence before you take the Eucharist there, Nathan. <laughs> so, um, so, so what was I saying? Oh, so, so we live... Our, our cultural moment is one of anti-authority, right? I mean, n- nobody trusts any authorities whatsoever. They don't trust the trust. The, they don't trust the church. They don't trust the government. They don't trust the media. They don't trust experts. It, we're just radically anti-authority, and I think we would be foolish to not recognize that as, in part, a consequence of the Protestant Reformation. I, I say in part. I know that yesterday, as we're recording this. Um, Ross Douthat tweeted that uh, that Luther caused Trump to be elected, and obviously that is a that is a huge overstatement. But <laughs> in in some sense, I think that kind of Trumpian populism is an heir to the Protestant Reformation, and I I, I am I am uncomfortable full throatedly celebrating the 500th anniversary of. The Protestant Reformation, for just that reason, I, I I think the bucking of church authority there is at the very least tragic. And I mean, there's reasons that they had to do it. I I, I see that. I see that the uh, I see that the medieval church was corrupt in a lot of really important ways. But I wonder if uh, if Luther didn't didn't throw the door a little too wide. You know what I mean? Well, it's I mean. Ignatius point about respecting the bishop you know is well taken but what if your bishop is a Borgia yeah. or like or what if you actually have three popes and they're all ex- and they're all anathematizing each other um, yeah I mean there was a real crisis of authority there before, was before anything got nailed to doors and yet and yet I mean Protestantism is a legacy of splintering we were talking, I, I, have a, I teach a class on Christian intellectualism, and we were talking about church discipline and how I asked them if any of them had ever been to a church that practiced it, and I think only one had. And I, I get, we got to talking about it, and it became clear that the reason you can't do church discipline anymore is because if you discipline somebody for adultery, they're just going to go down the street to whatever church will affirm them in their adultery. So I, I I don't think you can have church discipline mm-hmm. when you have that kind of splintered church because there's no authority left. To be excommunicated from the Catholic Church before the Reformation is to be excommunicated from Christianity. And I think there's that's scary in some ways, but I think there's something to be said for it because at least you the the purpose of excommunication right is to to make people mm-hmm. repent. And and how do you repent when there's no shared authority? When, when whatever whatever you do, whatever you believe about yourself, you can find some church that'll bless it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I and it's funny, Michael. I mean, I, I was listening to uh, Truth's Table the other day. And by the way, if you haven't listened to the Christian Feminist talk about Truth's Table, go do so right now. And then listen uh, to Truth's Table. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I'm, I'm about er, a third of the way through their catalog. And, uh, you know, they have some really good points about, you know, but basically their assertion is, I mean, if the church were really practicing church discipline, we might never have had an American Civil War because they would have excommunicated slaveholders. 
And, you know, the, the exact point that you just made, Michael, I mean, immediately came to my mind is that if there were enough churches that said, okay, you know, to disregard human dignity this way is anathema, people still could have in the 1830s gone down the street to a church that said, you know, slaveholding is the definition of human dignity. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm also with David on this point that, I mean, uh, when you've got a plurality of popes, it also kind of throws a monkey wrench in it. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, if we can talk about this, not in terms of historical particulars, but in terms of tendencies within the church, I definitely agree that the tendency away from real authority with teeth does make that question of church discipline a much more complicated one intellectually. Nathan, would you say that Luther created Trump? I would not say that <laughs> Luther created Trump. Uh, you, you know, I, it's, it's, I, it's funny, about half my Christian Twitter is Catholic and about half of it is Protestant, and it was... It was like a, a cold front hitting a hot front yesterday. <laughs> oh, man. No, I mean, I, I'm more inclined to go with Nathan Hatch to say that the populism of the American frontier is still with us in ways that we sometimes don't confront. Mm -hmm. And when people in, in very simplistic terms say people need just to trust the experts, uh, I always look to see what party affiliation they're with because it's usually whoever ain't in the White House at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and there's some truth to that too. That mm -hmm. that it's not like experts act as a governing body. It's not like they mm -hmm. all agree. Right, right. But I mean, when George W. Bush was president, it was the Republicans saying we just need to trust the economists. When it was Obama, it was we just need to trust the climate scientists. Uh, and now that Trump's in there, neither party likes him. We just Everyone's need to trust saying Trump. We need yeah, well, no, I mean, everyone's saying we need to trust mm -hmm. experts, not this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another th another thing to point out, though, is you can't necessarily resolve this qu this problem, this quandary, just by swimming the Tiber today. No, um, you can't. The, the go, damage has been done. You know, go read... Um, go read a, a, a range of devout Roman Catholic news sites... And you'll find the same the same issues the same some of the same, um, you know, saying you know this person is a cardinal, this person is a bishop, but this person is speaking in ways that are incredibly inappropriate. This person's a heretic. This person's a reactionary tyrant. Um, you know, the same. It 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 doesn't go away just because you know you have a pope. Um, and even and even then, um, you know, there's you know, there, there's, I, I there's agree with you, David. Quibbling about that, you know. <laughs> I agree with you, David. But don't you think that the Catholic Church has an advantage over the Protestants in that there's at least a shared language? You know, there, there's at least the sense that church authority, that church authority is real authority, even if we disagree about um, whether. Bishop X or Bishop Y should be part of that authority. Hmm. <laughs> I, I'm a medievalist. I have, uh, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist medievalist, which means, uh, you know, as, <laughs> as much as de facto, um, I kind of don't like the idea of a bishop in my life. Um, some of my favorite people were were bishops and abbots and those who who held roles of authority over the others um, and uh, did so with uh, with responsibility for the good who of those who were who were under them. Um, I think we can look in church history and see that power exercised well. We can also look back and see it exercised badly. And the question now is not whether anyone could wield the sword appropriately, but who do I trust right now to give it? Yeah. Well, well I mean, the bell's been rung. Yes. Very hard to unring a bell, as I've heard. Um, I, I will say this. One, one last word on this, which is that um, our sister podcast, the Pietist Schoolman podcast, has been doing great work about this in this in 
in this season of that show they uh Gertz, Gertz essentially says the reformation is something to be celebrated with lament as much as with joy that that it had real serious negative consequences and that in any kind of simplistic dismissal of the medieval church is missing the mark pretty seriously so you know mm-hmm. it's always a good idea to listen to chris garrett's uh, but if you're not if you if you're not subscribed to that show, the Pie to School Men podcast, uh, do it and listen to this brief third season because he he is really saying some important things from an obviously pie, uh, from an obvious Protestant perspective. I mean, this show's called mm-hmm. the Pie to School Men, so you know that you know that he's not speaking as some sort of closet Catholic mm-hmm. like me and Nathan apparently. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well. All right, but as I as I as I as I pull you burgeoning papist back from the brink, um, when we talk about the when we talked about the Didache last time, uh, I brought up a British scholar named Chris Tilling and what he calls the Christ relation. Um, he writes about it in regard to Paul's letters, but uh, what he means is how a given text presents or explains the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Christian believer. So I'd like to dig into the Christ relation in first Clement. Nathan, who, who is Christ in first Clement and how, how do we as Christians relate to him? Well, one thing that I noted, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think David, I, the, the author's name is escaping me, but the, uh, recent interview do, you did with profiles about, uh, virtue ethics in the, the sermon on the Mount. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh Pennington. Pennington. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of Pennington's claims that uh, has, has really been helpful to me is that uh, patristic Christian writing tends to be very Matthean. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Christ relation in this text strikes me as very Matthean. I mean, you can, I think you could make a cogent argument that a divine Christology is present. Uh, but when Christ gets mentioned in this text, it's usually in, a, in an exemplary role. Uh, and specifically as an exemplar who brings forth something that God the Father had in store for the world. Uh, so, I mean, we do get, you know, sayings like, let us fix our eyes on the blood of Christ uh, in chapter 7 of, of Clement. Um, and we get a lot of talk about the imitation of the humility of Christ, you know, reminiscent of, of Philippians 2, obviously, but also, you know, kind of echoing that that notion in Matthew, that Jesus is in real ways the fulfillment of Israel's vocation in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the the strong sense that, you know, uh, Christ is himself in his body a, a sacrifice for the redemption of sins that we get in St. Paul, we get in Hebrews, is muted here. Uh, we get a lot more talk about, you know, Christ as the the pioneer of faith, if you will, the one who leads the way and shows us how to be in the world. And specifically, you know, the notion, you know, continues to pop up again and again and again, and it makes sense given the problem they're facing uh, of, you know, did Christ, uh, and I'm going to use some anachronistic terms here, uh, but, you know, did he seize authority from the father or did he, you know, continue in the ways of the Torah and so on and so forth. And the continued citations of the prophets, especially, but also some passages from uh, Deuteronomy and so on and so forth in this letter indicate that, you know, Christ is carrying forth a tradition that he inherits just as much as he is doing things as a a unique and new actor, uh, you know, as the Lord and, and Christ. So, I mean, you know, the, like I said, I, I don't want to make too much of this because I came out of the Biblical Studies Guild 15 years ago, and I'm always cautious about big, strong arguments from silence. Well, you know, we don't mm-hmm. get the Pauline yeah. doctrine mentioned here, so obviously it's anti-Pauline. I don't think that's the case. What I will say is that where the emphasis lies is on Christ as the one who leads us in the righteous life before God. Um, David, I mean, what, what else is in here? Because I, this, uh, this Christ relation, uh, I have trouble isolating that from the way that it reads the Bible. So I'm going to hold off on the Bible stuff for a little bit. What other, uh, Jesus-y stuff do we need to talk about? Well, um, 
you, you mentioned looking to the blood of Christ. Um, there's also the, uh, the, it's, uh, I think it might actually be that passage, but he, he, he talks about the, the value that God places upon the blood of Christ. Uh, he talks about uh, Christ's role in bringing forgiveness uh, to the world. Um, uh, he talks about the role of faith and Christ as object of faith. Um, so, I mean, he, he, he doesn't have, um, he doesn't break into any kind of uh, Colossian pans to Christ the Creator. Um, there's, there's, not, uh, there's not a lot of uh, Johannine notes in here. I, I think you're right to call this Methan. Um, he seems, that, that seems to be the mode in which he works, mostly um, Christ as fulfillment of Old Testament or of, of Hebrew covenant. Um, he's, he's working in that idiom. He loves the prophets. And, fr and uh, that, that, that long, long excursus of basically just delivering um, Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. You know, just, uh, he, he just kind of refer, he refers to Jesus. And you know how it says about Jesus? And then he just quotes Isaiah 53. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like, like he can't even just kind of reference the text. He, he just got, he gets caught up into and then presents the whole text. Um, that, that kind of thing, uh, is, is, is really interesting to me because he feels the need, um, even though we may not have this other, this other language of, of biblical language or later, later creedal language, um, that uh, sp speaks of Christ um, in terms uh, uh, that are unavoidably divine. Um, he nonetheless w sings of Christ, um, feels the need to sing of Christ uh, in a particular kind of way. That 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 to me seems to bespeak how how the, how this writer thinks of him. That he would that he would just sort of so veer off of veer off uh off topic so far as to basically quote an entire chapter of Isaiah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then keep it in the text, right? I, I, but I guess you don't want to waste good papyrus or parchment or whatever it was they used. <laughs> Anything that you noted, Michael? No, not about that question. I noted many things. Haha. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the gospel. This is Reformation 500, like I said. So, um, if you if you would, Michael, imagine that you are reading First Clement with Martin Luther. Um, what passages do you think he would be underlining in red? Um, are there any passages in here that he would declare worthy of epistles of straw? Uh, what what is your judgment? Is he drinking at the time, or? Um, let Let's say that he's had enough to be in a more amiable receptive mood but not so much that he's going to start throwing mugs at the devil you know what Aquinas said he said uh, drink to cheerfulness ah yes okay imagine he's drunken to cheerfulness <laughs> um, Abraham is made righteous by faith in chapter 31 or, or you, it's divided into chapters in yours too right mm -hmm. yeah um chapter 31 uh he says let us therefore cling to his blessing and let us investigate what are the ways of blessing let us study the records of the things that have happened from the beginning why was our father abraham blessed was it not because he attained righteousness and truth through faith so you've got that you've got that justification uh You've got the justification by faith, and uh, in the next chapter, he says specifically that we're not justified through works. All, therefore, were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or through their own works or the righteous actions which they did, but through his will. So, um, not only do you have a justification by faith rather than works, you also have a semi-predestination uh, uh, mm -hmm. type of language there. On the other hand, 
That grace may be free, but it makes real demands on us. Uh, this is chapter 21. Take care, dear friends, lest his many benefits turn into a judgment upon all of us, as will happen if we fail to live worthily of him and to do harmoniously those things which are good and well-pleasing in his sight. So, like I said, grace makes these demands on you. It makes me it makes me think of a quote I sometimes use uh, from Karl Barth, who is his own sort of problematic mm-hmm. these days. Uh the only thing God asks of us is to live worthily, uh, to live as worthily as the one who, for whom He gave everything. And I should have looked it up before I tried to quote it. But um, mm-hmm. the point here is that grace may be free, but we don't get to just self-satisfiedly collect it. Mm-hmm. Um, thus, our love for God, He says later, should drive us to good works. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, it is therefore necessary that we should be zealous to do good for all things come uh, from him. So it it seems like justification may come from faith. I think, I think it's pretty clear justification comes from faith, but justification is not free of right living, if that makes sense. Right living doesn't cause justification, but it does seem to be tied up in justification. Frankly, mm-hmm. to me, he seems halfway mm-hmm. between the Lutheran and Catholic position. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's quite saying that justification and sanctification are part of the same process, but he's also not not saying that. Mm-hmm. Are we in On the Freedom of the Christian territory, maybe? Uh, I haven't read On the Freedom of the Christian since we recorded on it six years ago. <laughs> so you'll have and, to tell and me. I, and I actually preached on On the Freedom of the Christian in uh, Emmanuel College Chapel two weeks ago. So, so you yeah, take I'd it, say Nathan. we're in. Yeah, we're in On the Freedom of a Christian territory. I mean, you know, and and really prior to that, David, I mean, we are in Ephesians chapter two mm-hmm. territory. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, we are saved by grace through faith for the sake of good works. Not mm-hmm. because of good works, but for the sake of good works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I mean, all of those things are elements in that salvation narrative. Uh, but, you know, the prepositions matter. Right. Right. I, 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 that's one of the things that I, uh, I actually like about um, as, as I'm reading through First Clement is, is I, find, uh, I find moments where, where I want to just say, preach. Which I, I always I always enjoy those movements, um, th- those moments when I'm reading the fathers. Now, of course, I also enjoy the moments where I go, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a that's a different kind of fun. I guess we should get to one of those wait what moments. Um, I'm really interested in the way First Clement reads the Hebrew Scriptures, um, particularly his typological reading of Rahab's scarlet cord in Judges. Um, I have heard this one actually held up by um, different uh, biblical scholars as an example of terrible medieval exegesis, but it looks like this move was getting made before year 100, so yeah, there's not a lot of water under the bridge between apostles and the writer of this, uh, this author, or the writer of this epistle, and he's still making this move. So... Could you address that passage and maybe some others to characterize our author as a reader of Torah, Nathan? Yeah, so before I forget about it, I mean, if you want to look for terrible allegories, go no further than the New Testament book of Galatians. (laughs) Uh, When we get, you know, Sarah and Rahab of all pairs of characters, you know, lifted up as, you know, exemplars of works versus faith. I mean, I, you know, I've often told people that, you know, in the... uh, the epistle of first Peter, it's either first Peter or second Peter. I should have looked this up, but I, I didn't know I was talking, talking mm-hmm. about this today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when the text says, uh, also go listen to Paul, even though one of his letters is very difficult. I always tell people, I, I don't care what you've heard. That's Galatians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you, did you mean Hagar? What did I say? Rahab. Sarah. Oh, Sarah, you said Sarah and Rahab. Did I say Sarah and Rahab? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, Sarah I, I and Hagar, Rahab my apologies, first. my apologies. <laughs> Rahab is what First Clement mentions, right. uh, and I think it's a wonderful allegory. I mean, compared to Galatians, I mean, it's, it's very <laughs> sensible in my eyes. Uh, you know, uh, in the, you know, Joshua account of, you know, the taking of Jericho, uh, you know, the, the woman, and, you know, depending on how you translate her occupation, 
she's either the adulterous woman or the harlot or the temple prostitute. I've seen all three argued in scholarship. Rahab, uh, you know, basically allows the spies to escape uh, urban surveillance uh, and therefore, you know, is saved along with her kin. Uh, and in this text, you know, in chapter 12 of First Clement, uh, you know, she uh, hangs a scarlet thread, thereby showing beforehand that through the blood of the Lord there shall be redemption unto all them that believe and hope on God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just wonderful. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it is a red thread, so, you know, it kind of looks like blood on a doorway, which is kind of reminiscent of the Passover, which is yeah. kind of reminiscent of crucifixion. And, you know, it is an imaginative, lateral thinking kind of Bible reading mm-hmm. uh, that, frankly, I, I never begrudge to the ancients. Uh, I get a little bit more twitchy when modern reader, when modern preachers do it. Uh, I mean, for the same reasons that, you know, uh, I get leery of modern preachers generally more than I get leery of ancient preachers because uh, they can do more harm at this point. But, you know, for a first century or early second century text, I think it's wonderful. As far as the rest of the uh, Old Testament citations in this text, uh, again, I mean, we've got definitely a more Matthean use of the scripture than a Pauline use. Uh, The scriptures have genuine ethical weight to them. There's no, or I'll say there's no sense that I picked up on a a reread this week because, again, I read it carefully about three weeks ago like Michael did. Uh, of, you know, the strong um, opposition or antithesis between, you know, the works of the law and so on and so forth. It's definitely a salvation by faith, but it's a salvation by faith for the sake of good works. So when the prophets are quoted, uh, it is for the sake of their moral authority. It's not, uh, you know, these things are to be abandoned because something new has happened. Now, I mean, because of the particular problems Uh, that, you know, the church there in Corinth is facing here at the end of the first, beginning of the second century. You get a lot of negative exemplars uh, of people who were envious and jealous. Uh, You know, I kind of joked, you know, as I was making notes prepping for this episode that, you know, it sometimes reads like the gospel according to Beowulf uh, because you just get this (laughs) train of monsters uh, who, because of their jealousy, commit terrible acts against the faithful uh, mm-hmm. But then also you get positive exemplars uh, of people who, because of their humility, uh, God led them into great acts of faithfulness. Uh, so it, it honestly, you know, reminded me once you got to the positive exemplars of Hebrews 11, you know, uh, yeah. the central theme there is the pursuit of things that are unseen and, you know, Hebrews 11, 1. And then you get a sort of creative reading of so many narratives of the Old Testament in terms of their pursuit of things unseen. Likewise here, you get the general principle of humbling oneself before authority, and then you get a creative rereading of all of these Old Testament narratives in terms of the ways that they allowed other entities to rule them. Uh, So, I mean, it, it strikes me as a very New Testament way to read the Bible, uh, so I was very comfortable with it. Um, you know, as far as, you know, uh, Bible professors, I mean, I'm sure they would find fault in a lot of things that first Clement does, but, uh, as, as many a seminarian has noted, they would probably also flunk Paul out of intro to Bible reading. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I've heard the way, the way it was, it was sort of taught to me is, Paul gets to do an awful lot of things that we can't do with the Old Testament because he's inspired, and and so it works out. Um, and then you take a course in Second Temple Jewish literature, and you say, "Oh, everyone was doing this." Right. Except except he's doing it inspiredly. So <laughs> you know, and I and I don't want to say that's you know that that that's necessarily a, a an illegitimate thing right because you can say these people are reading the bible in the same kind of with the same kind of logic but but this particular reading of it is better for you know for for reasons that are beyond the technique um 
nonetheless, I, I, I think it's kind of fun to see that, that, that Clements feels perfectly capable reading the Bible in those kind of, perfectly free to read the Bible in those ways, um, asserting that things in the Old Testament refer to, uh, to things fulfilled in Christ without the New Testament's sanction for it. Worth noting, the Eastern Orthodox Church, I believe, says that the entire function of the Old Testament is to point toward Christ. Yeah, and I think I think Protestants would generally um, would generally say yes, that's that's true in principle, but be much more chastened about saying this text points to this thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Uh, that, I don't think it bothers me. <laughs> yeah. I, the text does a lot of things. I guess is my position. Yeah. The, the the text the text is uh, multivalent. Yeah. And so I've, I'm perfectly fine with Clement saying one of the things the Rahab story does is point to Christ. And I mean, Christ himself does this, right? He says the snake being held up in the desert right. is a type of me. Mm-hmm. So, whatever. But he gets to right. say all kinds of stuff. Right? But what I'm yeah. saying is, I mean, Clement's, <laughs> Clement's whole point here is you have, to imita- yeah. you have to look at the humility of Christ and imitate him. Right, right. I don't know know how much that's the humility of Christ to say, oh, this story of the Old Testament refers directly to me. Yeah. But I guess it's your prerogative when you're God. Right. Okay. Well, (laughs) okay. Well, what about, what about, what about, what about phoenixes? I mean, that's pretty weird. Yeah. He clearly believes in the phoenix. So, (laughs) uh, you know what else he probably believed in? He probably believed in spontaneous generation and a geocentric, universe who cares this isn't a scientific treatise his point here is that we can learn something about humility by looking at the phoenix okay so we know that the phoenix is not science we can say we can learn something about humility by looking at mythology which the phoenix certainly belongs to i'm sorry to rush through that but i do have to go in just a minute no that's my position it 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 doesn't doesn't damage his credibility that he believed pre-scientific notions about the natural world yeah I, I found it really. It is really, funny though. Like it's it's very it's very off-putting when you first come across it. I found it very interesting though because he treats it as look at this thing in the natural world, which illustrates this theological principle. I mean, in it's some just more ways. Typology. I mean, typology, but also um, very much the way uh, I've seen Christians approach the sciences. That we can learn things in principle, you know, demonstrated in the way the natural world works that are illustrative of things that are true about God. And Uh, honestly, some of Jonathan Edwards' most beautiful writing, even if it is squirrely theologically, is just this sort of writing. mm -hmm. Except instead of phoenixes, it's, you know, various North American wildlife. Mm -hmm. Spiders, right? Doesn't he love spiders? Well, that's... That's something else, yes. No, well, no, I, no. I, I thought I thought he has a whole treatise on looking at spiders. I, I mean, I know that. Oh, I I thought that was a sinners in the hands of an angry God reference. <laughs> no, it, it could be, but I think you're, I think you're right. I think you're right, Michael. I think I remember. I don't think I've read the spider essay, but I think I re, I think I think I remember hearing about it that he's got a s- spiders as spiritual lesson um, essay. I think, I think it's. I think that's why he has it in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anyway, I'll see you guys next week. Alrighty, right Actually, on. Actually, I guess I'll see you in two days. Indeed, dude. In the past, for you listeners. <laughs> nice. Well, we got to wrap up this conversation in any event. What else might we want to point our listeners toward in First Clement, Nathan? One oddity that does emerge in his Bible reading that I didn't mention earlier because I think it deserves its own brief mention here, David, is the fact that for this text, uh, Scripture is true in a sort of verse-by-verse manner. And the big place where this emerges uh, is in chapters 39 and 56 of 1 Clement, uh, the text starts quoting, you know, lines of Hebrew wisdom literature, pretty evidently, uh, very approvingly, uh, you know, talking about, you know, what is a human being and can any human being ri- be righteous? Uh, human being is like a worm. We cannot, you know, assert that human beings are righteous in any way. 
And, you know, it all sounds very kind of Augustinian and, you know, my, my Protestant heart is doing well until I realized <laughs> that he's quoting Eliphaz. Uh, and Eliphaz is the person in the book of Job who contends against Job and about whom and to whom Yahweh says at the end, you have not spoken of me what is right. <laughs> oh, uh, so, yeah. I mean, the Bible itself says this isn't right. Clement quotes it approvingly as if it is right. Uh, I don't know if that's a moment of sloppiness or if that is a moment of, you know, very sophisticated, ironic appropriation of biblical text. Um, honestly, I'm not enough of an early Christian writing scholar to weigh in on that. What I will say is that it, it was very jarring to me uh, to see that Eliphaz was one of our authorities right alongside Isaiah and Moses and so on and so forth. Yeah. Do you think maybe he judged Eliphaz didn't get that part screwed up? <laughs> <laughs> that is a very charitable reading, David. Yeah. I think I'll go with it because it's nicer than I'm being. <laughs> well, still, though, I mean, he, he does feel... Um, uh, it what, what's interesting to me is the the way and, and I guess this is this is my point is the way that the the author of First Clement is such a a textual thinker. You know he doesn't have this giant library of t of scrolls of the Torah and the writings you know, just sort of sitting at his elbow and he's just kind of s rolling through them, right? To, to get his citations right. Um, some, some of his paraphrases of, uh, of the, or some, some of his renderings of these texts don't look like any version of the text I know. Yeah, but, that's fair enough. Um, I think he's doing it on the fly which is giving us some kind of sense of how copious um, how copious this person's appetite for the scriptures was that that his imagination swims in it that it's the source of his rhetoric of his idiom of his uh, of his illustrations um, when it when it comes time for him to illustrate a moral principle when he's not bringing up phoenixes um, he's constructing an encyclopedia of that topic from Genesis to, uh, you know, I guess Genesis to, to Matthew. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, even if it is, you know, one of those moments where, you know, someone says, as William Shakespeare says, to thine own self be true. <laughs> and I'm sitting there as someone who's taught Hamlet and thinking, okay, that's Polonius. You shouldn't be quoting him. Uh, <laughs> I still have to give him credit. You're right, David, for having such a command of the text that he can just simply produce the speeches of Eliphaz with that kind of detail. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that to, to be able to say, okay, what does the Bible say about that topic? Here's everything. Yeah, and he doesn't have a concordance or a topical Bible or any of those kinds of helps. He's got at his fingertips. And sometimes these examples don't quite work. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will admit that. Sometimes the examples don't in, aren't, aren't maybe the best illustrations ever. I don't know what envy is there in Exodus when the other Hebrews say, Hey Moses, why are you lording it over us? Because you killed a guy. Um, I don't know that that's the best example of envy. Um, but just this cop this this copious scripture saturated memory, I think, is impressive. Indeed. Well, David, I kind of got ugly there. I mean, why don't you <laughs> uh, bring us home with a happier thought? What do you want to point our listeners to in First Clement? Well, that would be um, that that would be it for for someone uh, to, to to be a witness to the way this uh, generation, uh, I guess the latterly generation of the time of the apostles or the generation right after them, um, just the the ways in which they are uh, saturated in, immersed in uh, the, the the books of the scripture. Um, there are. There are references to Paul in here. 
there are also um, allusions to things that Christ said um, but it's it's a very uh, w- one of the ob- observations about the church of of, uh, of the next couple centuries is how textually centered they are um, I don't know that we can quite say yes quite quite say that that Clement's Roman church is defined by the, by their possession of a physical library but it is definitely rotating around a devotion to word um, that he believes needs to be coming out in everyday act and that's that's just good that's just good Christian preaching very good well dear listeners that is all the time that we've got for today um, next in our next episode, Michael will be hosting. He, alas, had to step out, step out to a meeting, as, as you heard. Uh, but our topic uh, for that n- uh, next next episode is the Hans Georg Gadamer uh, essay, The Universality of the Hermeneutic Problem. Do you think it has any phoenix in it, Nathan? <laughs> I have read some Gautamer. I don't remember any phoenixes, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I guess we'll just have to see. In the meanwhile, dear listeners, if you have any comments you want to make about this ep- episode, uh, corrections to statements that he, we've made, uh, if you want to um, lead us a, uh, lead us back into the Protestant fold away from Rome or make us go all the way, um, depending... Uh, Send emails to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post quote uh, comments on our uh, our blog post for this episode at christianhumanist.org, or you can send us um, messages via Facebook. You can post on our wall or send us private messages. Uh, also, check us uh, check us out on iTunes. Give us ratings there if you haven't before. Ratings is one of the ways that people find us. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer, uh, wishing you grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I will leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be strong.